Welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a movie, we review it, we talk about it, and we discuss some of the Disney themes it throws up. And as always, we'll end with our recommendations of further reading inspired by the film of the week. Before we kick off with our film proper, as always, we'll catch up on what else we've been watching this week. So Sam, what have you been watching in the last week that you want to talk about? Yes, uh, I saw a, a film of the weekend... Um, and it's going to seem strange to say that it was more traumatic than I thought it was going to be, given that it was about an offshore oil rig disaster. <laughs> um, but Deepwater Horizon is really very traumatic indeed. Um, don't go into it thinking you're going to get a human interest piece with sort of vague references to the disaster. It's, it's full on an hour and 40 minutes of trauma um, and it wasn't bad um, Mark Wahlberg was very good uh, Kate Hudson was good there was good support from John Malkovich um, yeah it's just not something I'd I'd recommend as as an easy watch shall we say and I, I wouldn't um, recommend it to other people in a kind of oh you should you should go and see this film because yes it I it was worth watching but I'm not sure I'd recommend watching it again. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. What about you? Um, I haven't been watching lots this week um, as always, baby. Um, but I have started catching up on a TV series that my wife is just finishing season two of and has been reading about. So I've gone back and I've watched season episode one, season one of No Offense. If those of you who haven't seen it, and if anyone's listening outside the UK, there's probably a good chance you've never even heard of this show. But it is from the creator of Shameless, which has crossed the pond, I know. Um, and it's about a team of policemen in Manchester um, who are solving crimes, and you know, and there appears to be an ongoing arching narrative around a possible serial killer um, in season one. But as I say, one episode in, I don't know yet. But it's in that same kind of very jocular very conversational style of writing um the actors aren't the traditional good-looking kick or kick ass you know take names kind of cops this is much more british procedural but also very very kind of mancunian in the same way that shameless was i'm only bit in but i'm really enjoying it the, the, the cast is is brilliant and it is you know it's very female-led and it's very um, unusual in, shall we say, in its casting. You haven't got the um, traditional good-looking, you know, blonde new person who works at the um, at the uh, station. Everyone in it is capable. Everyone in it is funny, but everyone also has their own um, sort of personality. And uh, also, it stars Will Meller, who I will for always have a bit of a soft spot for. So it's good to see him getting work. It's it's really good. I I really enjoyed the first series. Haven't seen the second series. Um, I like like you. I thought, thought it was great, and I enjoyed the way it was female led without necessarily being about women's issues mm. in the way that some sort of quote unquote worthy TV can be. It was just led by two or three actors who happened to be female because that's who the actors were and it was it was really enjoyable and really engaging and I, I thoroughly agree with that 
and I at some point intend to catch a second series, but I haven't got around to so it. So Sarah has just finished it and uh, been raving about it. So uh, okay. I'd say, yeah, check it out. Okay. Um, so, Rob, what are we on to this week? So, well, drawing to a close our eight-week extravaganza, this week we are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Two picks up essentially where part one left off with the post death of Dobby and the sort of the final missions and the final fight to uh, round up the Horcruxes, destroy them, and in time destroy and fight Voldemort. It's very much the opposite of last week's film, whereas last week was lots of setup, lots of talking, lots of walking. This was almost from the get-go action we have a little bit of chattiness and then it's just full-on for the next you know hour and 40 minutes we get the resolution to almost all the um, plot lines that uh, have been brought up over the eight films seven books and uh, we kind of the story's tied off in a very sort of nice little bow in many ways uh, we are have the reveal of Snape's true allegiances um, and we obviously end with the, the final battle between Harry and Voldemort. So, Sam, as the person who two months ago went into this not having seen many of these films and not having read many of the books, and being a little bit more circumspect in your enjoyment of Harry Potter, how did you find the conclusion to the series? thought this was a solid 7.5 out of 10 film, and it might be that I... I, I enjoyed the, the David Yates incarnations later in this franchise and maybe I've just got used to seeing generally pretty good filmmaking. Um, so maybe maybe it could have could have been higher than that. Um, I think this was this was a really good film um, and it was a, a satisfying conclusion to the franchise in many ways. Um, I would say it's, it's it's several steps below my favourite film, which remains the Half Blood Prince. Um, I much prefer the sixth film, uh, but I I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it's a toss up. I'd say um, films four, six, and eight are, are my my favourite in this franchise. I'm not sure. I mean, you you mentioned. Um, six as your second favorite film is is this then your favorite film? Uh, no, I, I I would I think I'd echo you, and I think that um, Half Blood Prince is probably my favorite. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I think that that's the one I think that hit all all the um, the points. Mm, yes. Um, it, I I thought this this was a, a then a, a perfectly serviceable film, but but not an amazing one. And it left me with a few 
annoying questions. I think maybe my overall mark was was taken down. My impression of the film in general was taken down by that god awful epilogue. Okay. It, it just it, it, horrible. Just horrible. Um, the the actors don't look anywhere near nineteen years older, and the script appears to have taken a huge turn for the for the schmaltzy moralistic tone right at the end and I just thought that that epilogue was poorly done, poorly conceived and shouldn't have been anywhere near this film I would have been much happier if it ended just before that Fair enough hopefully over the course of this episode I will try and convince you otherwise on on that Okay Um, I think that I, I would agree. I think the effects of it aren't very good. And it's one of those the passages that works perfectly in terms of a a, a book narrative because you can just say, you know, twenty years later, and the audience is filling the gaps. And when you try to translate that to a um, a visual medium, I think it loses something. What what annoyed me is that, given that. They they could have sort of swiftly got married those couples and had kids and it could be eleven or twelve years later, and that's just about believable. You could just about get away with saying those actors are thirty. Mm. I mean, they're obviously not. You could just about get away with that. But saying nineteen years later, putting them in their late thirties, that is just not believable. So it's. It was something I get. I can see see what you're saying that it it would work much better as as a book form narrative because you just say, well, I I can totally accept that that's what's going on. It was just something visually that I just it just grated terribly in me. And that I will happily I, I would agree that a visual technical thing it doesn't live up to the the promise of the book, but I would. I would argue for its inclusion narratively and thematically as part of the film as being right. very important. Um, okay. And I, I, I'll come to that once we kind of wade into um, our, more of our themes. I myself, I, I very much enjoy this film. I think it it works as a two-hander with part one and part two in that part one gets out of the way all the explanations. We've discussed this in the past when talking about franchise films. A one film can kind of clear the ground and get everyone up to speed with what's going on. So when you hit two or three or whatever way down the line, in this case, part eight, but uh, part two of this film, we can just go. There's a very short section start talking about um, wands and Gringotts. But once they leave Shottage, it is action all the way. It doesn't stop until the end. Um, there's a brief pause for the reveal of Snape's sort of backstory Um, but the narrative drives along throughout I like the fact that narratively this ties together a lot of things you've seen through all the films so we have have throwbacks to Chamber Secrets in which um, they um, find the Basilisk Fangs. We have throwbacks to the very first one going back to Gringotts. And there are throwbacks to all these little things that have been pulled up um, and sort of the world that has been weaved over seven films are all brought together in this kind of last stage, including, obviously, the um, 
invisibility cloak that Harry has is revealed to be the one of the the Hallows. Mm. Um, and I like the way these the, the Chekhov's guns we often discussed, you know, are laid at this point seven books ago, eight films ago, suddenly are paying off now. Um, having read up on on Rowling's plotting, I can one hundred percent believe a lot of these things are planned. She seemed a meticulous planner. And having read her Corman Strike books, which are very well planned, I, I, it doesn't seem like she's like, ooh, I've got this, I can do that. You know, it felt like she had planned for a lot of these things from day one. Hmm. I would say, actually, I've, I've been... In the, I, I'm not... Certainly not as forthcoming about these these books as, as you've been in the past, but I do really enjoy her Corman Strike books. And I think that, for me, was a sign that what I didn't like about Harry Potter was not something about her writing or something about her planning, something about the narrative, because she is a, she is a brilliant writer, as those books show. Mm. Well, I, I'm I'm glad you convinced. I would also put a recommendation in, just as a side here, to her non-Cormoran, non-Harry Potter book, uh, The Kicker of Vacancy, which is a much smaller, much less thriller-based narrative than anything else. Um, but it's... Uh, very very good and equally as tightly potted as um, mm. other things but I think that as always we had to kind of discuss some larger issues and larger themes for these books um, of these films certainly and you were discussing one that you felt kind of worked for this this last film yes I think it's it's interesting what what I was thinking about. I don't don't know about you, but what I was thinking about it's interesting the way that this film deals with death, and the way this film film deals with physical death, psychological death, the ends of various things, hmm. um, and I thought I thought that was that was really interesting, and I also like sort of connected with that the way that the film seems to experiment with different endings to the story. And n- not not in the way in a sort of choose your own adventure way, but in a sort of you get flashes of of different possible heroes and and the 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 visual language of the film seems to sort of set set Neville up as a hero at one point. And you think and that is an alternative ending to this film. Mm. So I think that that was really interesting. I I also really like what just while while you. Um, while you mentioned it, how it, it was it was admirable how short this film was, because this film could have been, and you've seen with Peter Jackson, for example, stringing out books into into multiple films, and this film didn't need to be because, as you said, she'd got all, well, David Yates had got all the the planning out of the way in the first film and all the setup, and this just needs to be action, and it is two hours of tightly plotted action and I really enjoyed that I I, I, I agree I think, I think to me death and post closing but mostly death was a theme through this film and it, I mean, I've made a couple of notes here I'm just going to go through them as, as I talk the first thing that really struck me was how dark the film is visually mm. um, yes. even in the shell cottage which was by the beach in the sunshine you've got you know, Ron standing in the door half in shadow Everyone's re- and the shadows there are re- they're really dark You know, it mm. drops into darkness really fast 
there's lots especially in the the Hogwarts scene uh, the Gringotts scene even there's lots of silhouettes and like the what what in just uh, technical here um, it's called crushing the blacks when you're doing the color grade of a film and basically you're taking like what would be everything from black to say 10% gray or 5% gray and bringing it all down so you get a really like rich dark dark film um, mm. and that's been done through a lot of this film and as I mentioned last week if you're looking at the early films they're bright they're sunny they're fun this is not that film even the stuff um, that when you get towards the end it's real and I think that it's the only scene that really kind of circumvents this is obviously is the let's call it the purgatory scene in which Harry meets Dumbledore mm. um that is the only scene in which it just blows away that and you get brighter colour, you get this bright different world. Even after that, it's still this grey, dark world. And I mean, I was, I was watching it, and when we when we get to Hogwarts, um, and it feels more like a tomb than anything else. You've got these these great shots of this huge staircase, and it's, it's kind of this love of architecture and this idea of this monument this building is inside. It's gone. It's no longer the fun place of you know boarding school hijinks and butter beer and feasts. This mm. is mausoleum now. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it was shot like that. It was shot with and the focus on this internal architecture. This kind of I couldn't speak to what style it is, but these staircases, these columns, um, it becomes this kind of encroaching mausoleum's feel to it. Yeah, and and linked with that, not not just the visual style is particularly dark, but also the morality of this gets muddied. I mm. mean, you may this this phrase "crushing the blacks" is the first time I've ever ever heard it, but it strikes me as something really interesting when you think about the morality, because that's what's happening with these characters, and you see, for example, you see various ostensibly good protagonist using the Imperio curse mm-hmm. which is set up as a form of dark magic so it, it, this sort of crushing the blacks is is occurring with the moral compass as well and you have Harry forced to do certain things almost it doesn't use the phrase for the greater good but that's what it what it comes down to at points certainly early on in this film yeah I, I, I mean it, it's very much that way i think it's also i mean aside from the physicality which i mean my background i'm drawn to the colors and these things most but it is also narratively that death is a constant in this film and and, and this time we'll someone talk about the deaths of the characters because we do have death as characters here but if you look at the the horcruxes that we deal with in this film all of them all of them involve death so mm. you've got Diadem, the Diadem of Ravenclaw involves talking to a ghost and um, um, recovering it uh, results in the death of one of the Slytherins. Harry has to die. Nagini has to die. You have to go and get from the the, the skeleton of a Battlet's fan to destroy the um, cup. And getting the cup results in the death of um, the goblin who's been with one. All of the, the Horcruxes, which is different to the last time, all here involve death as part of the process. Mm. Um, and I think that, 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 that that's purposeful that the further we get on the more these things cost um, yes. and and the, the, these things hurt but the, the, there's 
this is grown-up serious dark magic. This isn't that, Wingardium Leviosa. Yes, and that that's the thing you've, you've got sort of in at the end of the third film, for example, that I've sort of recuperated in my mind. It's actually much better than I thought it was at first, and I've talked about that, but it does, it ends with a, a swooshing shot of Harry escaping on a broomstick, and mm. That's the the general mood of that film, even though there's a turn to darkness in it. Like certainly, those earlier films are about making things levitate and flying and disappearing things, and even um, some even sort of sending notes between people in class. As as the series goes on, you have something like in Order of the Phoenix with. The, the note being burned by Imelda Storkin's character when she comes in, and you think, well, that sort of that that shooting down of the paper plane is sort of it, it, it's a metaphor for this process of things getting darker. This turn to dark magic as the series goes on, mm. and something you have, I mean, definitely you have with that is this idea that the Horcruxes are serious dark magic and do involve a cost, do involve a significant death each one so even though we find out in earlier films that Tom Riddle had to bring about deaths in order to achieve the splitting of his soul that was kind of something a bit academic when you first heard about it you think oh yeah he's he's got to kill someone in order to do this to his soul but here you have the the very real human cost of of what's involved in in each of these Horcruxes Mm. I think we we have to talk a little bit about the suppose the wider meta death here is that obviously this is the last in the series. Mm. Um, so Jacob Rowling essentially is killing off not killing off the characters because they're alive, but she's killing off the franchise. Um, and this is this is the end of this seventh arc. And I was thinking today I can't think of another film franchise in which you've got a planned seven film arc. Mm. You get threes, and you get threes quite a lot, um, and I push you get the old four. But I can't think of another another franchise of this magnitude. The only one I can think of probably is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But that's a very different thing. Cause it's more of a collective of stories rather than an overarching narrative. So there is this kind of feeling of endings through this that you have characters reaching the end of their stories. Be that death or be that um, the epilogue, and this is where I'm going to mount my defence of the epilogue. Mm. So, I think the epilogue serves two major functions: one narratively and one meta. So, meta I'll do first. Meta it is the way for the author or the filmmakers in this case to end the franchise, because now we flash forward 17 years. And we've seen them happily married with kids. There is no room for a film in that gap. I can see that, yeah. You, you, you aren't going to go back and go, well, Harry was an aura, let's see that. Because he's going to survive, you know he's going to survive. He's, there's, no, there's no tension in him and Ginny getting together, or their relationship, because that works out. Same for Ron and Hermione. There's no tension in their life further, you know. And by putting them at... I don't know, 35, I think they are, in, in this in this flash forward, you're moving them out of action hero territory. There isn't, mm. there isn't an, 
as much of a mainstream narrative enjoyable film about a 40 year old Harry Potter no um, especially when you set up this kind of happy families narrative like yeah if they hadn't done this you could flash forward and you know have that the old man Logan that we're getting soon from Wolverine have like here's a bitter old Harry Potter fighting the roids of whatever but we've got this flash forward now so I think there's, there's a meta and like a a structural point to it the other one and this is what, where I'm making my big pitch in terms of narrative is this film as we discussed is about death it's about willingness to die Harry has to choose to die uh, you have the mastering of death it's, and it comes up quite a lot with the Deathly Hallows they're called Deathly Hallows we have death of characters we have deaths of childhood and all this kind of thing there's destruction of, of, of Hogwarts this childhood home this film is about death and it ends with prior to the epilogue death of Voldemort the destruction of the Elder Wand what the film actually ends with is, is, is life in the idea that life goes on that this is a horrible thing that brought death and destruction on this world but out of it was born this life these lives these children and these futures and by putting that on the end you reinvigorate this film to be about life Mm. The, the the overcoming of death and the overcoming of fear of death and and then we talked about mastering death and the Deathly Hallows being the brothers who wanted to master death. Harry masters death in that he no longer fears it. He accepts his fate, and everyone in this film does the same thing. They accept that by going into this war, they're going to die, but they don't or do. But the the idea that this film. It ends on a life reaffirming moment. So I will I will happily say technically I don't think it's done well. I think you know as you say the age of actors never goes well. But mm. narratively I think it serves a, a good counterpoint to the darkness of the rest of the film. To end yes. it on a happy note rather than just a triumphant note. Yeah, I I, I agree. I I can see what you're saying there, and I think also this this seems to be about ordinariness as well mm-hmm. because like you said this is about one maybe maybe just contentment rather than triumph so yes. th- this is not the film where everyone's happy at the end and they sat the wand and Voldemort's dead and hurrah and they ride off into the sunset this is about the ordinariness of life triumphing over death because it is ordinary You've yeah. got 19 years, you've got raising kids, you've got moody prepubescence, you've got worries about going to school, and that's all ordinary, and you know their life's ordinary. And that's what life is about. That's what overcoming death should be about. And that's what overcoming death is about for Harry. He's, you're right, it's not, it's not a triumphant ending, it's a mundane ending, and that's brilliant. Yeah, you know, the idea is all the way through. He's been the chosen one, the chosen one's thing that come to me, and it's like he's no longer chosen. By accepting his chosen nature, he's no longer chosen, and that's that. I think is why the ending works. As I visually, I agree with you, um, but narratively, I, I will draw along a stand and die on that hill a little bit. Mm. No, I can see that. Um, you're talking about just just to finish up. You're talking about the deaths of characters. Um, do do you feel that those people who died died in a satisfying? Way? I'm not trying to avoid spoilers. We all know yes. spoiler heavy at so, this point. But do do you think the people who died 
were intended to die. I think so, but I think that... Now, there's an interesting... I thought you were going to ask me there, and I was going to say no to it, but it was, do they deserve to die? Um, Ah, And I don't think they did, and I don't think some of them... Like, you don't even see Remus... Uh, uh, Remus and Tonks die. No, but I think that's the point. I think the the idea is that this that this costs. You know, we, we, we've all seen films where you know they go up against the bad guys and everyone just happens to survive. Mm. Um, or if you look at the Josh Whedon way of doing things, one person who is kind of minor but you know a fan favorite dies, but it, that feels as tropey as anything else. Once you kill one of the twins, everyone's fair game. Mm. You know, the, yeah. the, the death of the mentor feels like part of the hero's journey, feels part of the death of Dumbledore, the death of Sirius, feel like helping Harry grow. But when you start in this war, it is a war film in many ways, you start to have the death of characters where it's just, they just died. And, and mm. this, your stand, Harry, is costing lives. And it has real consequences. So I think the deaths are needed um, in terms of narratively, but I think that it's still hard to swallow. Especially the, tw- the, the twins, one of the twins dying is, is especially a, a um, one for me because I think the books. And it is worth noting that J.K. Rowling does take the opportunity each year on the anniversary of the Battle of Hogwarts to apologise for the death of one of the characters. Different character each year. Um, <laughs> Um, which I think is something I do appreciate. Mm. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on the deaths? I think it's it's interesting that you said that. I'm I'm not saying that their their deaths are necessary, but it is interesting that they they too contribute to this mundanity. That like Zed, death at war is senseless, and there's not really any point to it. Um, and just in the way that life triumphing at the end is gloriously mundane, Remus and Tonks dying off camera is gloriously mundane. I mean, not gloriously, it's terribly mundane. Mm. But it's kind of mundane in, in the same way. And it's, it, it is interesting, I suppose, the, the, the scene that sticks with me, or the, the moment that sticks with me, is um, Harry talking to the ghosts of Remus. And he says, well, what about your son to Remus? It, it, about Remus and Tom's mm-hmm. dying. And Remus says, Some, somebody will tell him what we died for. And at that moment you think, well, yes, they will. But he's not really going to be able to understand it. And kind of like Neville was about his parents. It's going to be an an obviously traumatic thing. And it's going to be something that he has to live with mm. and that that thing was really stuck with me because I thought well the, this seems to be symbolic of of the deaths in this film they didn't have to happen but they did anyway yeah and I think that's I think that's that's the point death mm. death costs and war costs and life costs yeah, it costs mm. in blood and on that cheery note <laughs> Um, I just want quickly before we move on to and it's been run along a little bit here before we move on to our recommendations Sam have you overall enjoyed this series yes or no have you enjoyed it 
Yes. Brilliant. Then my work here is done. <laughs> Any recommendations for Sam? Yes. Um, they're both. Uh, I say both. I've I've got three because I'm cheating. They're they're all actors, and I I've gone for three rather than normal two because I felt these three just had to be mentioned. Um, so very quickly, three brilliant actors that I haven't talked about yet. Neither of us have talked about yet. I think um, it Ray Fiennes. And he is he's brilliant as Voldemort. I think he really grows into this character. And he was... The, the last Bond film, the less said about the better. But Skyfall was great and he was great in it. Uh, Maggie Smith was very good in The Lady in the Van a couple of years ago. Um, it's not a lot to be said about that. Um, she is spiky and unpleasant and brilliant. Uh, rather than being the sort of more lovable Minerva Gonagall that you get throughout this. And the late, great Alan Rickman for... just for being Alan Rickman Mm -hmm. and for making so many scenes in this franchise amazing. And I would throw a recommendation out for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I think was one of the first... I'm going to say adult. I don't mean adult in a, in a sexy time way. I just mean in this sort of grown grown up talking about things like violence and death way. I think it was one of the first adult films that I saw. Okay. What about you? I have two recommendations this week. Um, one, I'm bringing it full circle. So if you if you caught your mind back to the very first week, the beginnings, I talked about the first of the ring. And that, how that set up the franchise. So I'd be remiss in not bringing back um, Lord of the Rings um, Return of the King, the uh, third in that trilogy and that franchise. And it has that same... I mean, we don't see the same kind of cost in terms of death, but you still see that same kind of... the weight of what they're doing weighing on everybody um, and the choices being made being... You know, a bit of a, a Sophie's choice and that nothing's a good solution here. And also it does that same work in tying up a franchise in a manner in which you aren't going to suddenly have another film afterwards. So I think there's a, a, a link there in tying it up. Secondly, uh, sorry, secondly, I want to talk about the main three. We haven't actually really recommended many films based off the main three actors in this film. Mainly because some of them haven't gone on to great films. Um, and it's been hit and miss in their work but I wanted to recommend um, Daniel Radcliffe's 2013 film What If it's a a rom-com in a very kind of mumblecore very soft slow way it's not a traditional kind of shiny Hollywood um, rom-com but he's very good in it Um, and it's about him falling in love with a, uh, a girl with a partner and how to deal with falling in love with your best friend it was a bit of a surprise for me. I kind of it came out. I didn't see it, and I caught it up with it on uh, DVD after release. It's very good. There's great support from Adam Driver, from Ray Spall, from Mackenzie Davis, um, and it, it's just a, a very good rom-com. And that isn't something I say very often. So that's my right. my two recommendations: What If and Return of the King. Right. So Sam, what are we doing next? You have inflicted on me a franchise which it turns out I've quite enjoyed and uh, it's my turn to inflict a franchise on you 
and I'm not sure about the results of this, but we'll we'll see where it goes. We'll and it's see. The, we'll see. Um, it's the Richard Linklater uh, before trilogy, so before sunrise, before sunset, and before midnight. So we'll start with before sunrise next week. Brilliant, brilliant. Looking forward to it. You lie so so convincing. You, you, I, I know I am. They're films I've been talking about for a long time. I've never seen. They are a blind spot for me, film wise. So I am looking forward to catching up with them, even if they don't strike me as my kind of film. But I will, I will go in with an open heart, open mind. I promise you. Okay. Till then, guys, you can find us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find me at Life underscore Academic, and you can find me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week with Before Sunrise. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr. Arr.